Welcome back everyone to Poem Crit 101. As always, I'm Dr. J, your friendly neighborhood intensivist. Now, on the last episode, I mentioned that we had a really interesting case to discuss today. And let me tell you, there are more twists in this case than anyone was expecting. So, I present to you a middle-aged man from Central America. He's come to the hospital for some persistent shortness of breath and a dry cough that just won't quit. He did have COVID a few weeks prior to coming to the hospital. He's got no known past medical history. He's actually never even been to the doctor before. He's in mild respiratory distress, looks ill, but he's able to speak in full sentences. You see, he's on about four to five liters of oxygen, satting in the low 90s. Now, the CAT scan is done of his chest, and it shows ground glass opacities in all lung fields, pretty involved. You get some lab work, basic lab work, and you have a normal white blood cell count, slightly elevated creatinine, a low platelet count less than 100, hemoglobin of 8, and a fibrinogen of 100. All his other vitals, though, are normal. Blood pressure is normal, um, heart rate's normal, but he does have a temperature of 102. And you do check a COVID again, and he is positive. So let's kind of stop here and think for a second. Does anyone have any differentials with the information that I gave you? I can tell you what we were thinking. Our broad categories that we were kind of focusing on were one, infectious causes, and two, autoimmune causes. Of course, when we think about infections, the first thing that does come to mind is COVID, just given the diffuse ground glass opacities on imaging. But then we also thought about other opportunistic infections, including TB, MAC, PJP. And then when we think about autoimmune causes, we think about things like vasculitides, such as pulmonary hemorrhage syndromes, as well as other types of organizing pneumonia. So let's go back to our patient. About 48 hours later, he actually ended up decompensating, going into full-blown respiratory distress. We had placed him on heated high-flow oxygen, but despite being maxed on that, he started to breathe about 50 times a minute. His SATs were staying in the low 80s, and we went ahead and talked to him about intubation and getting him on the ventilator. He agreed. We moved him to the ICU, intubated him right away, and then we actually bronched him right after. His airway exam on the bronchoscopy <clears throat> was actually unremarkable, and we just ended up collecting some bronchoalveolar lavage and cultures. In the interim, we had gotten some other labs back, and those finally um, resulted. One lab that we'd ordered was a ferritin level, as and that came back in the 7,000s, and then we had also ordered an HIV level. You know, what the hell? It wouldn't hurt to check. Well what do you know, his HIV was positive. So this is where the story gets even more interesting. Let me add a few more twists here. We also got his CD4 count back, and I'll tell you, we all took bets. I don't think any of us won because none of us were expecting it to be as low as it was. His CD4 count was nine. Also, to add more uh, problems, the prelim cultures from the Bronx showed a positive, that he was positive for acid fast bacilli but his pneumocystis smear was negative. So let's kind of pause for a second and kind of summarize uh, our patient. So you've got this middle-aged man from Central America, came with respiratory distress, high fever, ground glass opacities on imaging, and he's not intubated. You've got a new diagnosis of HIV, well really AIDS. You've got positive acid fast bacilli cultures and a very high ferritin. So let's go back to our initial differentials. Given the information we now know, I think we can start to narrow down uh, our initially broad differentials. 
we definitely were able to. We threw out all the autoimmune causes and focused on infectious causes. So now that we know he had AIDS, really any sort of opportunistic infection was possible at this point. And remember, just a little review, that CD4 count can help us narrow down which opportunistic infection may be present. When you have CD4 counts of 500 or less, you're going to start to see TB, tuberculosis, in these patients. And at counts of 200 or less, you can start to see PJP, cryptosporidium, and candida infections. At counts of 100 or less, we'll start to see toxoplasmosis and esophagitis due to candida, HSV, or CMV. When your counts drop below 50, then you can start to see CMV infections, cryptococcal infections, MAC, and even primary CNS lymphoma secondary to EBV infections. Now, if we think about our patient, his CD4 count was astronomically low at 9. So you would want to anchor on an infection like CMV, cryptococcus, MAC, or even some sort of EBV infection. But let's hold on just yet. Remember, now once we found he was HIV positive, we also knew he was COVID positive. We, we kind of threw the COVID to the side because knowing how low his CD4 count was, we were pretty sure that this was some sort of opportunistic infection. So along with starting him on antiretroviral therapy, we also placed him on steroids and broad spectrum antibiotics initially. Because remember, bacterial pneumonia could also have been a possibility in this patient. Well, then we got that negative pneumocystis smear, so we weaned him off the steroids, stopped the Bactrim. And then once we got that positive acid fast bacilli, we made sure that our antimicrobials were treating a MAC, possible MAC infection, and we actually went ahead and started RIPE therapy for active TB. And then as our patient's clinical course progressed, we felt you know he needed a little bit more subspecialty support, and we did transfer him to a tertiary care center. What I should let you guys know is that right after he'd been transferred, we did get the final identification on his positive acid, acid fast bacilli, and it actually turned out he was mycobacterium tuberculosis positive. So I told you all about all these different twists. Well, there's another wrinkle that I haven't told you about, and that's actually what I want to focus today's uh, episode on. Let me pose a question to you. If you have a patient who's got a high fever, multiple cytopenias, very high ferritin, and some sort of stressor. Can you guys think of a specific diagnosis that comes to mind? And if you're coming up with nothing, don't worry, because what I'm alluding to is actually a very rare disease process. So if you thought about something called HLH, or hemophagocytosis lymphohistiocytosis, then kudos, because that's exactly what I'm referring to. What exactly is HLH? This is a syndrome of excessive immune activation that results in that classic cytokine storm that can have disastrous results, oftentimes death. In particular, CD8 T cells and macrophages are going to be involved. When we talk about HLH, we divide it into a primary disease process and a secondary disease process. The primary HLH is usually due to a genetic mutation that predisposes patients to this condition. These guys will usually present as kids. Secondary HLH is what I'm referring to, and this is usually what we'll all be seeing in the hospital. There are a lot of different triggers for this, but the most common ones include viral infections, particularly EBV, immunocompromised states like HIV AIDS, autoimmune conditions like lupus, Stills disease, Kawasaki's, even inflammatory bowel disease, and then of course malignancies like lymphoma and leukemia. 
Now, HLH has a lot of overlapping symptoms with other common disease processes, like sepsis, for example. So how can we truly tell that someone has HLH? Well, back in 2004, they created the initial HLH criteria and then a modified criteria in 2009. And that's really the criteria that we use currently to decide if someone has HLH. There's even a calculator called the H-score calculator based off the 2009 criteria that you can use to help determine that likelihood that your patient has HLH. So let's go over the criteria. Either your patient has that molecular diagnosis of HLH or the more likely scenario, you've got a patient that has to have at least three of the following, fever, splenomegaly, cytopenia is affecting at least two cell lines, specifically a hemoglobin less than nine plate or a platelet count less than 100 or absolute neutrophil count of less than 1,000 or hepatitis. And then at least one of the following, elevation ferritin greater than 500, an elevated soluble CD25 uh, level, hemophagocytosis and biopsy, or low or no natural killer cell activity. And then there's other supportive features that can be present like high triglyceride levels, low fibrinogen, and hyponatremia. But again, these aren't required for diagnosis. So if your patient meets these criteria and you've ruled out all other possible causes for those above signs and symptoms, then don't delay with treatment because again, the mortality rate with these patients is extremely high. The majority of these patients don't even make it out of the ICU. Because of this high mortality and because of the prevalence of this condition in the pediatric population, there is a protocol, treatment protocol created called the HLH94 protocol. And that was then extrapolated to the adult population. Essentially, this protocol involves steroids, dexamethasone in particular, given its ability to penetrate the central nervous system well, along with cyclosporin, intrathecal therapy, and then etoposide, which is a chemotherapy agent. That whole combination then works to delete activated T cells and suppress that cytokine storm. Now, with HLH and HIV patients, the focus, of course, is going to treat any opportunistic infection, but you can also give a topicide here. In HLH related to TB infections, there's no role for a specific HLH treatment like a topicide, and instead the focus is really on treating TB as we know how with RIPE therapy. Now, in HLH patients, if they relapse or they have refractory HLH, then they become a candidate for allogeneic stem cell transplantation. So with our patient, once we recognized that he was meeting modified HLH criteria, we actually went ahead and treated him for this early on. The interesting thing is, is that at our facility, we do not have a toposide, so we gave him a dose of tocilizumab an IL-6 receptor blocker that some of you may be familiar with after the COVID pandemic. There are actually small case studies that have showed remission of the disease with the use of the one dose of tocilizumab, with the idea of it blocking that cytokine storm, but at less cost to the patient in terms of toxicities that can occur with atopicide, because remember, atopicide still is chemotherapy. So tocilizumab may actually be a promising avenue for HLH treatment in the future. Now, I'm sure you're all wondering what happened to our patient. Last I heard, he was still being treated for active TB and was being maintained on antiretroviral therapy for his new AIDS diagnosis. He's still having fevers, and there is a now a confounding concern that this could be related to iris or that immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome. But that's a discussion for another time. 
In my opinion, this was a fascinating learning case. We've learned that COVID is not always the reason for every problem, opportunistic infections are still very alive and well, and that zebras, although rare, do exist. I hope you all had as much fun as I did going through this case. If you guys have any questions or comments, it can always be reached on Instagram at pomcrit101 or by email at pomcrit101 at gmail.com. Don't forget to join me next time when I chat with a very special guest who's got a unique perspective on all things critical care.